This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. I was hearing these stories from my clients and I, I was like, wow, my clients have been through these really, you know, unimaginable experiences. Who am I to have any negative impact from that? They're the survivors. I need to just suck it up and deal. And that's just not how our brains work. In this podcast, we've talked to pro bono lawyers who helped clients with a wide range of traumatic events. Hurricanes, religious persecution, wrongful conviction, homelessness, just to name a few. But in this podcast, we've never talked about what it means for lawyers to be exposed to their clients' trauma. We've never talked about the human impact of hearing those stories, the challenges of walking the path with our clients, and the intensity of addressing trauma through legal work. We've never talked about how we can prepare ourselves for that work. And we've never talked about what can go wrong if we don't prepare. So today, we are going to fix that. We're going to talk about some of the hard parts of being a lawyer and a human. And we'll talk about managing the emotional impact so that all of us can keep doing pro bono for the long haul. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. Sometimes we talk about law as if it's just decisions, legal principles, oral and written advocacy. But lawyers are actually servants. We work for clients. We serve other people. And this is especially true in most pro bono work. So just as we need to know, say, how to read statutes, we need to learn how to work with people. Now, this conversation today is mostly focused on just one element of working with people. That is the impact that hearing about other people's trauma can have on you personally. And that impact is called vicarious trauma. Learning about and managing vicarious trauma well, that's just part of being a good lawyer. And too often in the past, there's been this notion that, well, lawyers, we don't do emotion. And so we don't need training on those social worky things. But that's just not true. Like it or not, we are people and people do emotion. So rather than pretending that we shouldn't have emotional responses to the work we do, we'll talk here about how we can prepare ourselves to recognize and respond to the emotions that we may feel when we do pro bono work. To take a deep dive into this topic, I had the great pleasure of talking with Lauren Connell, pro bono counsel at Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Tower, and Feld, and with Ken Rosenblatt of PLI's research and development team. I'm Lauren Connell. I'm the pro bono counsel at the law firm Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Tower, and Feld. I'm based in our New York office, but help manage our firm-wide pro bono practice along with the rest of the pro bono team. And I've been at Aiken for almost nine years now. I started off as a corporate associate and then in 2017 switched over to this role as pro bono counsel. And in addition to managing the practice, I maintain still my own client practice, focusing primarily on asylum seekers. And then to keep the corporate skills alive, I also do some nonprofit corporate governance work. 
Hi, Lish. I'm Ken Rosenblad. I am an interactive learning producer and process improvement leader with the Practicing Law Institute's Research and Development Group. I was trained as a cognitive psychologist and have been working in that area, leading process improvement and learning initiatives for the past 35 plus years. So, Lauren, tell us a little bit more about your pro bono work. Sure. So I came into the firm through a program that we still run called the Pro Bono Scholars Program. The goal of the Pro Bono Scholars is to recruit, you know, 1L law students who want to come to a firm, but also have, you know, a passion for pro bono work. And in my case, I always knew that I wanted to work with the immigrant population. And so, you know, felt that big law would be a great path for me, but I wanted to still keep that immigration passion alive. Initially in the corporate group, I was doing M&A and securities transactions, but I would always maintain at least one active pro bono immigration matter. And so when my predecessor decided to leave her role in 2017, you know, she approached me asking if I would be interested. And it just led me to think about a totally different path. I previously had been advising mainly, you know, private equity clients on their M&A transactions and then switched over to no longer be doing billable commercial work. Now my role is focused on the management of the pro bono practice and also my own pro bono client work and then adding that nonprofit corporate governance angle as well to keep some of those skills alive that I had cultivated in the corporate practice. And so in your experience, what do you think is different about working with commercial clients versus working with pro bono clients? I think there are certainly a lot of differences. I think, you know, our pro bono client population, you're going to see a lot of diversity. And I mean that in several respects. You know, you'll have people perhaps coming from different countries and cultural backgrounds. You most Certainly, we'll have people from varying socioeconomic statuses with asylum seekers and and others who are trauma survivors. You're going to be working with people who have experienced really difficult circumstances and have survived just really horrific traumas that for many of us, we have not experienced in our own lives. And for those who have experienced that trauma, that can be a challenge because it it could resurface some of those very difficult experiences in the attorney's own life. And so there's just a lot of different factors, I think, when you're working with a pro bono client that you may not encounter on the commercial side. I mean, the thing about an asylum practice is, in so many ways, the only thing that your clients have in common is that they have experienced a traumatic persecution event in another country. But it's not like you're working with a a population of people who are connected to each other or speak the same language, or as you said, come from similar professional or educational backgrounds. It it has always struck me that in asylum work, you are really saying, I am going to meet whomever needs me wherever they are at. I do think that's accurate. And I think it's just one of those things where you can never really know what the person opposite you is thinking. And you have to be sensitive to the fact that you may never understand entirely. Even if you're someone who works with the client over many years and builds a very trusting relationship, you're you're most likely coming at it from an entirely different perspective. And I think The other thing that's really important to remember and consider in the context of the asylum representation is that even though your goal and the client's goal is to be able to remain here, you know, free from persecution, that may be something they've never wanted to do. You know, maybe they don't want to be in the United States. This is the last place they ever thought they'd end up. And I think sometimes less experienced attorneys, you know, come at it with this perspective of like, well, of course, you know, the United States is where we should all want to be. And of course, you know, this outcome is what the client wants, which in some respects may be true. That is the outcome they want, but it may be for reasons entirely different from what the attorney is thinking. I'm wondering if you can take us back to the beginning. What was your first taste of pro bono and how did it go? Sure. So when I joined the pro bono scholars program, the way that works is you split your first summer after one L year of law school 
half at Aiken and then half at a public interest organization. And I really had the privilege of working with an organization here in New York called Her Justice, which helped low-income women in New York City with family law and immigration law matters. And I focus particularly on domestic violence survivors, helping them to get lawful immigration status. So that was my first true taste of the work. And from participating in that program, I got to know the pro bono team very well, which is headed here at Aiken by our pro bono partner, Steve Shulman. Back then and today, he remains a great mentor to me. I came back to Aiken as a 2L, did some more great pro bono work that summer. And then it was, you know, 2014, I had just graduated law school, had taken the bar, and I had returned from my bar trip when I got a call from Steve. And in my head, I'm like, why is Steve calling me? Like, does he want me to do research on something? Like, what is this? And it had turned out that, you know, while I was buried in bar prep and and then being away for a few weeks, the Obama administration had implemented a new policy of detaining categorically Central American women and children who were entering the country together. And part of that um, meant that they were, you know, turning detention facilities over to solely house these families. And one of those facilities was called the Carnes Detention Center, which is located in Carnes City, Texas, which is around an hour south of San Antonio, where Aiken has an office. And so Steve had called to see would I be interested in coordinating the pro bono legal program down there? Because he knew from our past work together that I was interested in immigration issues. And as he joked, you know, I hadn't started yet, so I wouldn't be pulled away from any work (laughs) that was ongoing. (laughs) So I was like, okay, like, why not? And very quickly, you know, Aiken's very supportive and up to the chairperson of the firm, Kim Coopersmith, gave support for the project. And so before I knew it, instead of starting immediately as a corporate associate in New York, I was in September 2014 flying down to San Antonio and was seconded to that office through the end of that year. This decision by Aiken makes so much sense. I mean, the firm wanted to respond to the emerging issue of family detention at the border, And then they looked at the group of new hires who were committed to pro bono work, and they saw Laura had experience in immigration, both through the pro bono scholars program and through work that she did before law school. And she could commit 100 percent of her time to the project without abandoning any other assignments. So they acted fast and they got her down to San Antonio to dig in and start helping immigrant women and their children in detention. And so my day to day was just unlike anything I could have imagined. And also recall, like I was a brand new baby lawyer, like fresh out of law school. So this was really my first true full time experience other than my summer internships at the firm and at the public interest stores. But my day to day, I was working in a detention facility. I was interviewing upwards of 10 to 15 women a day doing intake, learning about their experiences back home. Most of the people that were in the facility were fleeing either domestic violence or gang-based violence or a combination of the two. They were necessarily detained with their children because this was only a detention center for families. So I was meeting women with children, some as young as a few months old, who they were still breastfeeding up through, you know, 17-year-old teenagers. So in addition to the intake, what my responsibilities included were taking on individual clients. So for each of these clients, we needed to do an individual bond hearing to get them out of detention. And then, you know, since I was the only one on the ground at that time, because the legal services orgs were mobilizing and reallocating funding, oftentimes I was the only one at the facility. And of course, I could not do everything. So I was also trying to recruit pro bonos, whether from Aiken or from other firms in the San Antonio community to represent the women as well. So it was just a very chaotic day to day, long days at the detention facility, some days, you know, in court hearings, and then in between it all fielding emails, fielding frantic phone calls from family members of these women, my cell phone number got passed around, it was a very intense time. And I mentally was not prepared, like didn't 
didn't realize that, of course, at the time. And I only realized it when things got admittedly kind of bad. So kind of slowly, I realized that kind of hearing all these stories day in, day out was taking a toll. And I made a really grave error in thinking that it would be a good idea to not really share with my family and friends what I was hearing because it would be upsetting to them. Like kind of my mindset was, wow, like these are really horrible things that that have happened. You know, my my mom and dad aren't going to want to hear this. Like my friends aren't going to want to hear that. And so I kept it a lot to myself. And of course, there was there were colleagues in the San Antonio office who were working on these matters who I could share with, but it was a very limited you know, amount of sharing I was doing. I can remember the things I worried about when I started my career. If I were in Lauren's shoes, I would have been very careful about sharing. I would have thought about the narrative that lawyers don't do emotion, and I would have been nervous that as a woman, I would seem not lawyerly if I expressed emotions. I likely would have decided to limit how much I said to anyone about my reactions to the trauma stories. It gradually built up and built up, and I started to notice changes in myself. I'm overall a very positive person. It became very quickly apparent that I was developing a very negative worldview. I I felt hopeless. I felt like, you know, everyone out there is a horrible person. Like, you know, hearing all of the horrible acts that were perpetrated against my clients, it became very difficult to envision a world in which there is goodness. And I that sounds dramatic, but that was how I was thinking at the time. I felt very disillusioned with leadership, you know, the administration that had, you know, put this policy in place that was subjecting these families to to the, these very difficult circumstances after experiencing trauma. And it started to express itself in ways that I felt were not good for my advocacy. So just to give a couple of quick examples of that, I started to have what I considered outsized emotional reactions to things that like really weren't a big deal. Like I would go to the San Antonio court to drop off a filing and one of the clerks who was notoriously not the friendliest person scolded me one time for having the certificate of service in the wrong place and That, you know, whatever, it is what it is. She made a big show of like ripping it out and like putting it at the back. And I almost broke down crying in front of the clerk, which just is not a typical reaction for really anyone, but especially for me. I just knew it felt wrong. But more concerning for me was I was in open court with the client and the judge. I can't recall exactly what it was, but, you know, said something to the effect like, I hadn't filed one of my bond briefs with enough advanced time for him to review. So he needed to consider one of my client's cases like a few days later, which very much upset me because that meant at least, you know, a few more days the client would be detained. But again, yeah, that's something to be upset about. I almost broke down crying in the court. And I recall looking at my colleague. I was actually not admitted to the bar yet because I had just graduated. So I needed an Aiken lawyer with me at all times to be able to appear And I looked at this colleague and he just was able to help bring me back. And I still am so grateful to this day that he was there. But that really freaked me out. Lauren's experience was intense. Her ability to empathize so deeply is exactly what made her great at the work. But it is also what made the work start to impact her negatively. Fortunately, Lauren had other important resources, the insight to recognize that she was not doing okay, and a network to whom she could reach out for help. And I went back to a mentor attorney of mine at Her Justice, the organization I had worked uh, with as a 1L, and, you know, shared what I was going through and, and was like, you know, do you have any idea how I can better cope? I just feel like this isn't the right way to do things. And... She thankfully pointed me to a social worker contact of hers who spoke to me for five or 10 minutes and was like, this is classic vicarious trauma. And I was like, vicarious trauma, what's that? Like I had legitimately never heard of the term. And, you know, she educated me that, you know, as empathic human beings, we necessarily internalize a little bit of everything we hear and it can 
result in the secondhand impacts, like what I had been experiencing. And all of the symptoms I had were like classic vicarious trauma symptoms. Vicarious trauma literally means that hearing someone else's experience has a traumatic effect on you. Now, which client stories impact you and how much they impact you? Well, that is different for every person and every story. While Lauren was in an overwhelming situation, hearing so many stories from so many women in a really short time, I have also seen a lawyer visibly impacted by a single client story of intense trauma. I have been that lawyer. Whenever a client experience disrupts your sense of justice, your sense of fairness, your sense of safety in the world, well, the story of that experience will have an impact on you. Now, the good news is that the impact on you can be managed. But the first thing you have to do is recognize that it is happening. I was so relieved that I had like something to to be diagnosed with that I could then address. Like it was something that was resolvable. And so I ended up getting recommendations from colleagues on the ground in the legal services community for a therapist in San Antonio who had experience with vicarious trauma. And I really credit her, the therapist, with helping me, you know, work the remaining time I had, I probably, I think, started seeing her about halfway through, like a month and a half in, and I still had a month and a half to go. And I really credit her with giving me the tools I needed to do the work and do it well and be an effective advocate for my clients. But it, to this day, like still, when I look back on it, I just think, you know, it was nine years ago. I think a lot has changed in how we're talking about mental health in the law. I think there's a lot more awareness of vicarious trauma and other things. But, you know, it was one of those moments where at the time I was like, how could I not have heard of this? Your story just brought back my first job doing criminal defense, appellate work with people who had all been convicted of first degree murder and rape. And I left the job within six months because I was having nightmares that I had committed horrific crimes. I have never described that as vicarious trauma. I've always described it as criminal law just wasn't a good fit for me. But right now, listening to you tell your story, I was like, oh, right. That's what that's exactly what happened to me. So so thank you so much for being willing to share it and for and for sharing it in such a in a crystallized, clear way. Here's my question for you. Upon reflection, because you now are coordinating, organizing the pro bono at Aiken, is there any preparation or support that you think could have made a difference for you in advance? Like, yes, I'm thrilled that you got access to therapy. I think that's a hard pitch for pro bono to say, please do this hard pro bono. We'll get you a therapist name. <laughs> is there something that that someone could have offered to you in terms of like training and preparation in advance that you think could have helped? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I'm happy to say that we've at the firm given or brought in people to give these vicarious trauma trainings. There absolutely are trainings being able to recognize first the risk of vicarious trauma and that it is something that can happen to you as an advocate. I think one of the other barriers I had and many others have is that I was hearing these stories from my clients and I I was like, wow, my clients have been through these really you know, unimaginable experiences, who am I to have any negative impact from that? They're the survivors. I need to just suck it up and deal. And that's just not how our brains work. And so for me, that education was really important. And so vicarious trauma training goes into that and educates you and, and, and makes you understand that this is something you're at risk for, and then also provides insight into, you know, symptoms to be watching for. And then different types of coping mechanisms. Like you absolutely don't necessarily need to go to a therapist to do this work, I'm happy to say. But as I mentioned earlier, one of my big missteps was not having confidants that I was sharing with. So, you know, when you do vicarious trauma training, that's one of the, th the things that is discussed. And so 
you know, it probably for me wouldn't have gotten to that point if I had found, you know, within my own networks, like the right people that I could have confided in at the time. So that's why I think the training is really important. I think it, it just helps you one, be educated about it, two, recognize if you are, you know, experiencing those symptoms, and three, giving you the tools you need to then do the work and do it effectively. It was not surprising that a podcast from PLI would tell you that training can help you prevent and manage vicarious trauma. But we have to be honest, managing your own emotional responses to casework, that's just not a typical topic for legal training, right? It's not a question of explaining the holding in a case or dissecting a new regulation. So we have to ask questions. What does training about vicarious trauma need to look like to be effective? In fact, what does all training about how to work well with trauma survivors need to look like for it to be effective? Having heard Lauren's and my discussion so far, Ken Rosenblad of PLI's research and development team definitely had thoughts about the role of training in preparing lawyers to manage vicarious trauma. What stands out to you, Ken, when you hear this? Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you, Lauren, for for the work that you do. It's sort of overwhelming to hear how challenging that must have been. It makes me think of many things. Thinking to the question that you just asked, Lauren, about what could have been done in the beginning to actually provide her with something, first of all, to make her effective at what she does, which is sort of a procedural part of there's learning that's around here are the things you need to do to help people that are in these you know, dire circumstances. But the other side of it is the sort of human emotional side, which when we think about training, we often forget. And I think one of the benefits that I've had in my career is that I've been trained by people who helped me understand that there's, there's a difference between actually knowing what to do and knowing that you need to change and then actually changing. And being able to do that is improved greatly by understanding the power of stories and empathy to help people understand and then become motivated to make the change. Now, in your circumstance, Lauren, you were going through such vicarious emotional trauma, experiencing these things yourself, but you describing what you did, it, it became clear that you didn't know really what to do about it. You sort of relied to fall back upon behavioral skills, coping mechanisms that you had had in the past. We all come into the practice of law with certain coping mechanisms and problem management skills. And we get taught some specific lawyerly frameworks for dealing with situations. I think Laura really nailed a common feature of attorney culture when she said she felt like she was supposed to suck it up and deal with it. In a way, that right there is the training challenge when we are preparing people to manage vicarious trauma. We are training people to resist some parts of lawyer toughness culture. Ken's point that there is a difference between knowing the new thing that you need to do and actually making the change to do the new thing, that point really resonates with me. Then add on the fact that changing behavior and resisting old messages is especially tricky when you feel vulnerable. And vulnerable is exactly how hearing other people's traumatic experiences can make you feel. So all of this makes it an advanced challenge for designing effective training to support pro bono lawyers. So when I think about this, I think about how would I construct training to help somebody recognize what was going on. It would be to call upon the power of developing stories and situational behavioral modeling to show someone who is going to be going into circumstances like this, what could potentially happen to them, and then to draw upon those stories to help them understand where do they need to make changes in their behavior to help them improve, not just the, their ability to functionally do the procedures that they need to do, but then also to recognize that if I don't do something to help myself, 
I won't be effective at actually doing this kind of work. So I think what you're talking about, Ken, is using stories in the training before people have gone out and done the work to help them kind of see what a difference it can make. Is that right? Right. Lauren started out doing this work and really didn't have any understanding of what what was going to happen. So by creating scenarios based on like working with someone like Lauren, if we were to design this kind of training, we would take, you know, maybe some specific stories, maybe one particular incident and sort of demonstrate through a video scenario the initial meeting and the gathering of the information of what was happening to the person. And while we were doing that, we would then maybe we would propose some questions beforehand that, you know, while you're watching this scenario, think about these things as you're how the attorney handles the situation. And then after it's over, we would come back and say, okay, how well did this person understand the needs? And one of the things I I really liked that you were talking about when you told your story earlier, Lauren, was talking about outcomes. So what are the outcomes that we, we need to expect to occur here? So traditionally, as an attorney, you'd be thinking of the outcome would be, I need to effectively help this person navigate the situation that's there. But another outcome is that you now need to go on to the next person and the next person and the next person. And another outcome that we would want the trainee to become aware about is the outcome isn't just about this individual transaction. It's about the arc of your work through this whole circumstance and ensuring that you maintain safety and self-care that will allow you to continually to go into these circumstances. So we would want to be able to use those stories and then use information delivery. So we'd have to communicate to them. And Lish, you and I have done a lot of this around how do you work with domestic violence survivors? Well, in order to do that, they need to know what are the things you need to do? What are the process steps that you need to do it? But in addition to that, You need to understand the emotional impact about it. So delivering information about how to do what you need to do, but then also making sure that they understand the full context of the circumstance and the impact that it has on the individual. And it's a challenging instructional design problem to solve because most instructional designers are trained purely on the, what are the learning objectives that I need to do here? And how do I translate those into a set of procedural steps? Well, another learning objective is how do I recognize when self-trauma, vicarious trauma is happening and what can I do to help mitigate that? And it's something that we often don't think about because we tend to focus on the outcome for who we are working with as opposed to a full context of a, a scenario that involves you as a participant. Yeah. If I can jump in, I mean, so much of what you said, Ken, has resonated with me. I mean, from the the start of, of what you were saying about kind of leave two different skill sets, because I did go in feeling very prepared like on the doctrinal side. You know, I had great training from law school, from the firm, from prior experience, being able to know exactly what I needed to do in terms of, okay, we got to get these women out on bond. This is what we need to do. And then also like I had interviewing training. I had all of these other things. And I I thought that was all I needed. And if I had had, you know, the type of training you're just describing now with stories and the situational modeling, I think that would have opened my eyes just again, like the exposure is half of the battle, I feel like just to know that, that this is, you know, a potential outcome, going back to your use of the word outcome, like, I had never thought of it that way. But that's exactly what I was feeling. I was very focused on getting the outcomes for our clients, which in in those times in that situation were quite dramatic. The outcome was literally, we need to get this person out of detention and free to be with their family or friends. And so I think that too magnified, you know, looking the other way in terms of my own mental health initially and not really considering it as part of the greater picture when really it's so integral to getting that ultimate outcome. This point is worth emphasizing. Learning how to recognize and manage vicarious trauma is an important skill for great lawyering. When lawyers don't acknowledge and manage their emotions, 
Those emotions leak out in inappropriate and counterproductive ways that make the lawyer less effective as an advocate for the client's position. But let's go back to the design challenges that we have identified. If one of the goals of vicarious trauma training is to change traditional lawyer culture about how we manage our feelings, well, how do we, the trainers, know if the training we are designing is actually effective at changing behavior? We found a research study that pointed out particular elements of training that have a higher likelihood of getting people to actually change after they've learned what they need to do, they've had the awareness that they need to change happen, but it takes that additional step of actually changing when you get into the work situations. Because when you're faced with challenging circumstances, you often will revert to behavioral comfort and revert to the behaviors that you've done over time, which are not optimal. So they came up with three elements in particular that have an impact on the training, one of which you actually have both Lish and and Lauren, you both have touched upon, which is the characteristics of the learner, him or herself. In other words, you bring a certain set of expectations, a certain set of behaviors to a circumstance that will influence what outcome is potential for you. And And we really don't have any control over that. But the two additional ones that we do have control over are generating empathy in the learner so that they can empathize with the circumstance and the people that they're working with has been shown to actually have a potential for impacting the behavior. And then also, once you're done with the training, to set a goal to go back to your work environment, your circumstance that you do the the work within, and set a goal to actually make a change of one or two things. Those two elements are two that are key that can be added to all the other elements of instructional design that we do when we build out training along these lines. So the characteristics of the learner impact how much they're going to take away and change, and then finding a way to generate empathy, and then having people set a goal. Right. right? And, and the empathy part is, is what we were talking about before, and that Lauren really accurately brought up as she was reflecting on the stuff that I was talking about, which is stories and scenarios, and actually showing not just what is happening, but how what is happening impacts emotionally on the person that you're interacting with and on yourself. So as Ken is talking about the importance of triggering empathy for learners, it occurs to me that an important element of managing vicarious trauma is having empathy for ourselves. We have a lot of narratives as lawyers. We're told to be tough. We're told we don't do emotion. Lauren pointed out questioning whether she was allowed to feel traumatized because she didn't have to live the stories. She just heard them. One thing we can do in pro bono training, we can normalize the fact that lawyers are human. We can show that humans feel deeply about other people's trauma. We can demonstrate having empathy for ourselves and our colleagues when a client's story hits us hard. And we can help people set goals for how they will manage those deep feelings when they come. But there is a fear a fear that talking too much about vicarious trauma will just turn people off doing pro bono. I'm afraid that this whole episode could undo your willingness to devote your free time to working with trauma survivors. And it is reasonable to worry that adding more training time to pro bono work will just lead to fewer people actually working with clients. So Lauren, I'm curious what you think of this, because there are a lot of practical challenges to bringing lawyers into doing pro bono, getting their time and attention, their hearts and their minds to participate in training. What do you think about what Ken just said and how you might apply it in a firm like Aiken? Yeah, I mean, I've learned a lot from what Ken just said. And I I think, you know, Ken, what is so great about listening to you. It's like you boil down these complex things into what sound like, of course, like obvious things we should do, but it doesn't always occur to people. I I think it makes total sense. I mean, 
particularly the generating empathy piece is something that is so crucial to a pro bono client representation. I mean, if if the empathy is not there, you're not going to get your client to trust you, particularly when trauma is involved. Like it's just the connection's not going to happen and you're not going to be an effective advocate. So the empathy piece really resonated with me. On the other side of it, just learning the characteristics of who is coming to this training, you know, I think that's crucial too and goes backlish to what you were saying. It's like you know, there are some people who are going to come to a firm who are like me that are like, absolutely, I want to do pro bono. Then then there's, you know, everyone in between all the way to the other end of the spectrum of like, ooh, pro bono, that's outside my comfort zone. You know, I'm just not going to touch that. And I think that's the real challenge, which was the first thing Ken said about the characteristics of the learner, because we have everyone on that spectrum that we're trying to appeal to. And I think if you're trying to get that one end of the spectrum of the people who are very uncomfortable and just are not um, are not naturally inclined to do this. I think the best we can do is is try and get them to understand, you know, that they are capable of doing this and that this training, while it is, you know, a half hour, an hour, two hours of their time, will enable them to feel that same comfort level they have on the commercial side. And I think if we can get that messaging across, it, it could help us, you know, get through to people and make them feel more willing to take that leap. Okay, maybe we can spend a minute being practical. What do we think is the maybe the core skills training? Not, And I don't mean skills in the, you know, how to write an asylum petition, but I mean the core people skills, soft skills. So you want to do a pro bono case. Let's talk about how it feels for you and how it feels for the client. What do we need to get to people? I can start giving, you know, my perspective. I'd be very curious to hear if Ken agrees or disagrees. So I think the cultural competency piece transcends all types of pro bono, regardless of whether there's a trauma element or not. So I would put that as a foundational training that would be beneficial to anyone taking on any type of pro bono work. And then in addition to that, if you are working with, um, an asylum seeker client, a trafficking survivor, domestic violence survivor, cases where there are stronger elements of trauma as there may be, you know, elements of trauma that are not as apparent. But for those cases where they're very trauma forward, I think trauma-informed lawyering is another, you know, very crucial training. And that can be as expansive as also including that vicarious trauma training we were talking about. So the training would cover, you know, both interacting in a productive and em empathic way with your survivor of trauma client, and then at the same time also focusing on yourself and the uh, potential impacts on you as the advocate. Yeah, I totally concur with that, Lauren. And and from my perspective, not being in that world, those that immediately occurred to me as you were talking, I'm saying, yep, yep, that makes sense. What happened for me is that I'm thinking to myself, okay, the things that I mentioned earlier in this conversation, those would be the things that would need to be applied to designing that training because we can say we want that training to be built. And, and it's completely correct that those are things that occur to me. It's uh, that you be uh, you being effective to help the person that you're interacting with, but at the same time, recognizing that, you know, part of your commitment to your craft is that you have rules of professional conduct, part of which say that you need to have competence in your representation and making the attorneys taking the training aware that that side of it is important. And the key thing is to make sure that what you're building is effective because saying we're going to train somebody is different than saying we're going to train somebody effectively. I think what's interesting is I have had a tendency in training ideas I have and things that I build to sneak in the cultural competency and the vicarious trauma awareness. I'm not sure I do as good a job as I should of naming it so that it gives people a concept to hold on to. It's more like the projects Ken, you and I have worked together will be like, we're going to teach you to interview. We're going to teach you to communicate. But then all the skills that we are trying to teach people by definition are incorporating 
Pay attention to your emotional reaction. Pay attention to the client's emotional reaction. Take a breath to make sure that they are understanding what's happening. Is it important to name the concept so that people see it and have something to hold on to? Or is it easier for people to take on if you're just saying these are the actionable skills and if you do those, you will, guess what, ta-da, be practicing in a client-centered way. One thing occurs to me is that in the many, many years that I've been doing designing and building learning experiences, one of the things that occurred to me is that the way you described it is like, well, I had to sneak in the soft skills stuff. And there is this, it's viewed as pejorative in a lot of corporate environments because it's viewed as something that isn't as valuable as the actual technical skill that we have. And so the the thing that I would say is that it's absolutely important to make sure you name it and that you bring it in there, but that you tie it to a competency and you tie it to something that makes people believe I am furthering my value as an attorney by ensuring that I adhere to the softer side, which connects to professional responsibility, representing my client in an effective way, and, and connecting it to something that's concrete and measurable as an outcome that will be valuable to them. So ensuring that your language, and it speaks to the whole, the learner, how do we engage that learner in a way that makes them feel they're going to come to this with, um, with their full commitment to doing it? I 100% agree with that, Ken. And, and I think it's we actually have a relatively easy sell we can make in the pro bono context, particularly for the, the side of the spectrum, people who are less comfortable in this space. I think they may be the most open in some respects to, to learning these new concepts because they have this discomfort of like, okay, I'm going outside my traditional sphere, outside the comfort zone. And I think one of the fears is that they won't be successful. And so I think as a pro bono professional at a law firm, one of my jobs is how do I support that person and make them feel like they can do just as good of a job as on their pro bono case as they can in their day-to-day commercial practice. And I think when you tie in the training to that, you know, if we can say to people, hey, like this type of cultural competency training may be something you would never think about doing in your day-to-day life, but you will take away these actionable skills that you can then employ in your pro bono practice to be successful in that representation. In my opinion, that's an easy sell. And our job is just to communicate that effectively as to what those actionable things are. And so to that point, Lauren, how do you facilitate the right kind of training for attorneys at Aiken? We really rely on our legal services partners who are on the ground, you know, doing this work day in, day out and meeting with clients. I think the important thing is that we defer to the experts. Like we consider our legal services partners, you know, the experts in in this space and and a, a place where we can continue to learn. Ken, do you want to talk about what Practicing Law Institute is doing to to get this kind of training that you've been talking about to people? PLI, in particular, the Interactive Learning Center, has been working with our program attorneys and our subject matter experts, such as you and others, to create scenario-driven learning where we have behavioral modeling and we are demonstrating behaviors in actual circumstantial situations. So sort of situational learning where you have the power to generate empathy and generate understanding in ways that are not possible through just sort of the traditional sage on the stage lecturing, which has powerful benefit. And it doesn't mean that those situations aren't productive because those folks are people that have been in these circumstances and their storytelling is very effective and can be helpful in the learning. And in fact, what we do, one of the folks on our team works with some of the, the, our subject matter experts who speak at our programs to incorporate small scenario-driven videos in actual live room-delivered programs. But the other thing I saw PLI do, Lauren, you participated in the trauma-informed lawyering session, and, and I thought it was incredibly impactful, frankly, to have you there with a story about what you went through in your early pro bono, the one that you told us today. But then there was also someone who is now an advocate and an activist, but also a trauma survivor who went through the process of trying to 
find a lawyer and work with a lawyer and was able to tell just a very compelling story about that experience. And so, you know, that that idea without having to hire actors or write dramatic narratives, but just recruiting a different kind of subject matter expert was very impactful. Yeah, I mean, participating in that panel was a very powerful experience for me. It was the first time I had ever told my story in any type of public forum. And it was also the first time I had participated in that setting with the trauma survivor. Like, even though I'm, you know, constantly interacting with survivors of trauma in my practice, it was the first time that I had seen someone come forward and share their story for the purpose of helping attorneys improve themselves, which I thought was incredibly powerful and reminds us why we should do this work. And I thought the example given during their presentation about I think it was an attorney like breaking down and crying because that person hadn't dealt with their vicarious trauma really hit home for me. This is why we share our stories. This is why we we seek out the resources. Maybe you're considering taking on your first pro bono matter. Maybe you're at the other end of the spectrum and you've been working with trauma survivors full time for a decade. Either way, wherever you're at, reaching out for resources will help you be a better lawyer. And I've got an easy place for you to start. PLI has trauma-informed lawyering and vicarious trauma training available on demand right now. That training is how I first learned about Lauren and her story. And if you want the skills training I mentioned where I snuck in managing your emotions... You can find that on PLI's Interactive Learning Center. But whatever resource you connect to, I also want to thank you for being willing to take on the work, being willing to walk the path with clients who are trauma survivors, and being willing to bring your whole human self to lawyering for people in need. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono. <laughs>